Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. I found my mind in a brown paper bag, but then... That explains so much. All right, we're back, and I have a few quick questions live from Twitter here. Uh, Philippa Jane asks, Ethereus, are your eyes still a forget-me-not blue? Um, well, today I'm wearing a red shirt, so it's probably leaning more towards the green-gray end of the spectrum. But uh, yes, they're still forget-me-not blue, and uh, I'm not going to play the Mitchell and Webb clip because it confuses the hell out of people whenever we play it. Uh, I think we need to build up a an assortment of bumpers and carts that we use, like having a kitty spanked on mic when one of our listeners hey. spanks us an email. That would be funny. Um, let's see here. Conundrum wants to know, for the interregnum stories, are framework concepts accept- acceptable or only full-fledged stories only? What sort of length? Um, the length that I'm looking for is something between 1,000 and 6,000 words, something that will be a single episode. Um, I'm looking for fully fleshed out stories. They don't have to be really complex stories um, at that length. They probably won't be. But I'm looking for people to submit stories that are actually fleshed out and ready to be read on the air. And as a rule of thumb, um, a 5,000-word story tends to run somewhere between 28 and 32 minutes, depending on the speed of the read. Right. Uh, Free on Wheels asks... Uh, what is your favorite alcoholic beverage, Chris? Uh, that depends upon my mood and the particular day. I have, if there's one thing that I have a weakness for more than just about anything else, it's Kiyoki coffee, which is coffee that's got uh, brandy and a few kinds of liqueurs in it and is topped with whipped cream. <laughs> Very Ever tasty. had an Irish coffee, Chris? Yeah, I have. Kiyoki coffee is Irish coffee on steroids. Okay. And sugar. Yes, and sugar. Uh, he also asks, he, he says, by the way, please send some of your metamor protagonists to Detroit. That will teach them. The curse won't save you in Detroit. <laughs> well, that depends. I mean, there are some pretty badass characters in the world of metamor who would... Uh, survive quite well in the mean streets of Detroit. And, and and let's be honest, government subsidies can't save you in Detroit. You're fucked. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> okay. So, um, speaking of being spanked by our listeners. Mm-hmm. Yes, Kim Fortuner sent me a rather long and detailed message that deserves a rather long and detailed reply so we're going to take this in pieces yes this is kim the comic book goddess from the secret society of delayed world conquest Mm -hmm. Uh, or for delayed world for delayed world conquest and what's her uh url it is www.comicbookgoddess.com okay so kim sends in to say Hello, I have to say that I'm hooked. You even got me listening to the interviews. That's something that had been exclusive to Holyfield. Huh, guess you guys are pretty well matched as nemeses, nemesis, nemesis, whatever. (laughs) In any case, I agree with pretty much everybody I've heard talking about your podcast. It's brilliant. 
Aw, thank you, Kim. Uh, Kim, you got to send me an email telling me what Chris is doing on interviews that I'm not, because I want you to listen to mine, too. Mm -hmm. I'm an egomaniac like that, and <laughs> you're cute, so hey. Um, <laughs> and you're a great feedbacker on my show. She continues, However, I do have some issues. I, too, think that it's a little overly odd for some... Uh, for the entire society to decide that non-breeding males should be excluded from the breeding cells because they can't be happy in a family if the children they're helping to raise aren't their biological issue. Because you have time to show us so little of the telepaths outside the collective, it's hard to believe that even a deeply flawed society of empathic mind readers would be able to so marginalize their low-powered males without acknowledging the need for additional emotional outlets for them. Okay, well, first of all, um, they do realize that this is a problem with their setup. Uh, the Psy Collective is very young. It's still only not even 100 years old at this point, and they have not worked out the kinks of their society yet. No pun and intended. for reference, how long are generations in your universe? Um, humans tend to live about 80 to 90 years. Okay, so about uh, what they are here. Yeah, about what they are here. It's a little longer on average because of better medical uh, magitech, and people's quality of life tends to be better into a later age. Okay. Uh, but human lifespan is still not regularly cracking the 100-year mark. There are perhaps two or three generations of Teeps in the collective at this point, that who this is the only society that they've ever known. So it's still very much in its its early stages, and they're still experimenting with what works and what doesn't. They do try to put some support structures in place for the non-breeding males. The bachelor cells are intended to be a mechanism for that, to give them a place of community and safety and a way of interacting with the rest of the hive. They also have community structures like the cellar, these sorts of meeting places that are intended as social outlets, and the regular meetings with the hive itself as a whole to bond with the rest of the, the community. And of course, they have the option for people to opt out of full participation in the collective. If you want to, and your bills are paid up, you can leave. You can go in and have a regular life in the capitalist society of Metamore proper, and you know they'll wish you well and if they if you really need help chances are that somebody's still going to have your back if you're really in danger if i can ask a related question something uh -huh. cuz you and i have kind of gone not really gone rounds on this before but we've uh, we we've talked about this a little bit mm -hmm. and um one of the things that um that this brings up for me is i um that you and i haven't talked about before is the notion of genetic diversity maximization yes cuz you've the reason I bring it up is you've said that the rationale for setting up the breeding cells the way they are mm -hmm. is to maximize the number of children. Right. But having one male per cell mm -hmm. also minimizes your genetic diversity in any given setup. Since there's no, um, there's no rotation pattern for the women and there's no cross-pollination allowed for the men. It's not quite true. There is no social wife swapping going on um they do have among the the 
elders in particular. There are individuals, males who are recognized as having particularly valuable genes, um, who donate their sperm to different breeding cells around the collective. Uh, even Victor's genetic issue was uh, spread around in that way. Uh, even though he wasn't considered a viable candidate for a cell husband, he was still considered a viable candidate as a sperm donor. And so there are some instances of that going on around the collective. And so they're recognizing the need for increased genetic diversity. But in terms of social structures, they tend to keep it fairly restricted to the, the one male, many females polyamorous setup. Now, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination saying that this setup is ideal or perfect. Obviously, it has problems. And the exploration of those problems is part of what we're looking at coming out in making the cut. From a female perspective, it just sounds like it wouldn't be as much fun. <laughs> she continues, And I, too, was unhappy with Eva's presentation that how to be a woman in the way she terms it is an integrated function of your soul. Okay. Eva does not actually say that. Um, she explicitly does not say that your soul is different. What she says is that it's your same soul behind a different filter. Artax reinforces this when he says later to Danny that souls aren't inherently sexual. So that is, there's some misconception that has happened there, which I'll talk about more as we go on with the email. Okay. She continues. Now, I agree that it is rational and typical for these individuals in these societies to behave and believe this way. It's even understandable that you would place more emphasis on those parts of human behavior that have roots in animal behavior. But people have layered tons of socialization and thought over these impulses, and the majority of our population can and does subsume these impulses on a regular basis. I think she means sublimate, doesn't she? Um, if she does uh, say sublimate, then that's a completely uh, different... She says subsume, but yeah, it doesn't but... quite make sense in context. Yeah. Anyway, Go ahead. Uh, what I think it really comes down to is that some of us believe gender differentiation and its trappings in humans have become much more of a function of socialization than genetics. There is not much provision for this viewpoint and derivations thereof in your narrative. As a consequence, you touch on many issues that are related to the question of nature versus nurture, but don't raise it as a question itself. You simply come down on the nature side. Well, the thing is, um, nature versus nurture is a false dichotomy. It's an idea that's been discredited in psychology and animal behavior for decades now. We know now that all behavior, as near as we can tell, is influenced by three factors. One is your genetics. One is the environment, which includes both your behavioral environment of the way that people treat you and the chemical-slash-hormonal environment in which you developed in the womb. And the third factor is what we call G by E. Uh, it's an interaction term that expresses how your genetics are expressed differently depending upon environmental stimulus and how your response to environment depends upon your genetics. It's a confounding factor that has a big influence on things and it's very difficult to separate out from the genetic and the environmental factors as pure things. One of the, the issues that I'm having here with the argument that you're making, Kim, 
is that the social structures that you're talking about don't originate out of nothing. They're not something that was imposed upon us from the outside. The social structures that we have are behavioral strategies that have come into existence as a survival strategy, and they're under selection pressure just like everything else about human nature. 95% of the human population lives in societies where female reproductive priorities are maximized at the expense of male reproductive priorities because human societies survive and prosper when female reproductive priorities are maximized. This is something you see again and again and again around the world throughout history, regardless of whether the society is overtly patriarchal or matriarchal or egalitarian. The societies that survive, the ones that succeed, are the ones that protect the female's reproductive interests. Um, what was it uh, Lazarus Long said in Time Enough for Love? Any, any culture that is based or that has as its central maxim anything other than women and children first is eventually doomed to extinction. Right, exactly. So the social structures that you're talking about you know, even when you're, you're hiding them under layers and layers of civilization and behavioral norms, um, those biological imperatives are driving the shape of the social structures. Not, well, to be, to be fair, the biological imperatives drive it, but they, they drive it either as an impelling force or as the force which the culture is fighting against, which is the case in many patriarchal cultures. But even even patriarchal cultures, when they're... Um, or I should say patrilineal rather than patriarchal. Because yeah. there, there is a difference. In yes, there out. is. Pa patriarchal cultures are pretty much, when you actually look at the outcomes, they are a way for women to trick men into thinking that they're in charge and that their interests are being um, advanced. When in an absolute term, in terms of, if you look at who's reproductive benefits are being maximized it's always the women yeah, and the by the way there's a distinction that you're implicitly making but that might not come across okay between the reproductive the genetic interests of a gender and the psychological interests of a gender exactly and this shows up among uh, child free people like uh, myself mm -hmm. um who decide deliberately to minimize their genetic advantage in order to maximize their psychological advantage. Mm -hmm. um, it is quite possible for the reproductive interests of an organism, a person, a woman, a man, to be fully served at the expense of that person's freedom, mental health, uh, sense of self, healthy relationships, etc. Which is some of what we see in going on in the collective. But here's the thing. The people who subsume or who shut down their reproductive interests at the, for the sake of their own psychological interests um, don't pass on their genes. No. And so those expressions, those particular patterns of genetics don't get passed on. What survives and what gets perpetuated are when you have psychological interests that are in line with biological interests enough that the biological interests get served and perpetuated. Because if they don't get served and perpetuated, then the genes don't get passed on, and that particular psychological makeup doesn't get reproduced. 
Not necessarily. It may true. crop up again. It may it may um, crop up again, but it's not it, it, going to directly okay. get passed on. Okay, now I'm going to argue with you on your own turf. Go here, for it. Chris is the biologist, and I'm the dilettante here. Okay, but um, it sounds almost like you're falling prey to the genetic fallacy in um, evolutionary psychology, which is assuming that a particular trait, such as not wanting to have children mm -hmm. or religious bent or enjoying music or homosexuality is a genetic trait or primarily a genetic trait rather than a byproduct of a particular interaction between genetics and environment. Well, let me just say that the you're you're right that there always is that genet that interaction. Um and everything that we are Everything about our psyche is influenced by genetics, but is also influenced by what happens to us. I mean, right. that's. I, I think the point that Dan is, is making here is, is if you assume that something is going to die out if you choose not to um, pass it on, that kind of an argument would imply that homosexuality existed in greater numbers at the beginning of time or beginning of human history and would dwindle down so that there is less homosexuality now than there was 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years ago. Except that that ignores the effects of kin selection. One of the things that, um, the reasons that, why we... why this, we This is his point. Right. This is his point. My, my, although it's correct that my particular genome will not be passed on in Havsies the way mm -hmm. people who have children, their genomes will. Mm -hmm. The traits that make me unique apart from say my siblings who are also all very gifted and intelligent people mm -hmm. are not uh, necessarily going to be lost with me uh, my family line's not going to end because i come from a big family mm -hmm. but more to the point the psychological traits are not going to be lost with me because they're emergent properties they're byproducts of the genetics rather than direct Mm -hmm. um, they're G by E effects. They're G by E effects rather than direct genetic reduction effects. And mm -hmm. one of the problems that people have in wrapping their <clears throat> mind around um, nature versus nurture or genetic stuff is keep coming back mentally to the debate about whether there's a gay gene, right? Because mm -hmm. if there's a gay gene, I, I've heard I've heard this um, recently talking to friends of mine about transhumanism. Mm -hmm. Friends who are afraid that uh, is soon of of genetic sequencing, liberal friends, because mm -hmm. once the gay gene is discovered, then parents will be able to select against it and will have no more gay people. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's one of four factors that have been identified as uh, homosexually causative, and all of the other three are environmental. They're and also the genetic links. The, the genetic influence mm -hmm. factors it's, that influence... They're not a gene. It's a cluster of different genes working together. And they're completely different clusters for male homosexuality versus female homosexuality. Right. And we have no idea about bisexuality. Right. So the notion that there's a gene for gayness or a gene for republicanism or a gene, <laughs> or, or a gene for liberalism or a gene, you know, mm -hmm. a gene for these different traits, that's, that's the fallacy which drove 19th century eugenics. Mm-hmm. That's completely wrong. Facts right. have erased it. That's true. And um, so, I, as mm -hmm. you were going down, it, it was you, you were you were expressing it in a way that could very that could easily be, be misinterpreted that yeah. direction. Yeah, yeah. You know the the thing that I wanted to to get to here when 
she talked about how what was the exact phrase that she used about um subverting our but the people have layered tons of socialization and thought over these impulses and the majority of our population can and does subsume these impulses on a regular basis and i she's got okay. to mean sublimate it doesn't mm-hmm. subsume doesn't make sense subsume would sort of imply at least to me that they're that people are shutting down or take or or overriding no, those... that would be sublimation. sublimation sublimation would be redirecting the impulse to, to a different activity that that's a completely different thing okay because i'm not sure what you may have meant kim because the idea Let's that see. that our impulses can be sublimated or transferred from one outlet to another that i would totally agree with and we certainly do see evidence all over the place in human society of biological impulses being rechanneled into different directions you know sports are an ex- a ritualized lawrence, warfare what lawrence krauss said sport uh, sports is to warfare as pornography is to sex right so yeah it's it's a ritualized way of controlling male aggression and giving it an outlet that is non-destructive to the society as a whole. And even warfare is itself a very structured outlet for male aggression that was designed to minimize the amount of damage to women and children, to the, the reproductive heritage of well, the societies that they it, that took part in it. It's not just a structured outlet for male aggression. Though, um, since the rise of agriculture, um, women have been progressively edged out of warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, in tribal cultures, women are warriors too. Right, but tribal and, cultures are, are those societies where male, male reproductive impulses tend to be maximized and, dom- and dominant. And... As a result, they don't thrive the way that civil civilized right. societies do. Right, but, but, but I'm just I'm, I'm calling you on, on the notion that it's male aggression. Fe- females are aggressive too. We're a violent species. We wouldn't mm-hmm. be a species with a higher brain if we mm-hmm. weren't a violent species. It's a double-edged sword. Females do exhibit aggression, but female aggression most of the time takes a very different outlet from male aggression. Right, but I'm going to side with Kim here. The that the the shape of the outlet it takes is determined by socialization. But the social is the social structures themselves are constructs of a biological and environmental interaction yes these structures come into existence because they're biologically advantageous no they survive because they're biologically yes. advantageous right. they, yeah but they survive again like all things in evolution they survive because they're just advantageous enough to get to the next generation exactly not because they're optimal right yeah there's very little that you can look at in human society that is optimal or in um, nature yeah or in nature <laughs> But if the subsume was actually what you meant, Kim, and that they're, the idea that people are actually overriding their biological impulses, I don't think that that's true. I think that most of the time, when you look at human behavior, it can be explained pretty much entirely in terms of basic biological impulses that are either being followed directly or are being, or transfer- being sublimated. sublimated and transferred to a different format that is better suited to the societal structure around them. The only areas where I think you can possibly argue against that are in art, music, other creative pursuits, and arguably religion. See, I disagree. I think those are all sublimations, too. They could be. But those are the areas where I would say that that the pure biological 
um, explanations are that they're doing the most hand waving. Um, check out uh, Steven Pinker, and um, Pinker is one of four or five evolutionary psychologists and neurobiologists who, in uh, studying economics, have come up with a evolutionary explanation for those things as a manifestation of costly signaling theory. Mm. Similar to the Bowerbird, right? See, I can t- I can believe that. I can I can buy that as a possible explanation, but I also happen to believe in a soul and in the, a creative drive within humanity that is something special and unique about us, and that's not something I have any biological basis for well, believing. See, but I in. I believe that too. But I follow um, Daniel Dennett's explanation. You have a soul; it's just mechanical. Ah. It's still special. It's no less special than if it were spiritual. It's just, you know, something that comes from the bottom up rather than okay. the top down. Okay. We'll have to... <laughs> Emergent property of... Yeah. An epiphenomenon? An epiphenomenon. Oh, I hate that term. <laughs> there are epiphenomenons all over the place. I know, I know. But okay, we're getting we're getting a bit of field a bit from... Field. Okay. Yeah. So, and anyway, she closes that, that paragraph out uh, criticizing you for raising... for. For answering the question rather than hmm. raising which ant, which question the, the, the nature, nature versus nurture. Well, that's question. again because nature versus nurture is as effectively been answered. The answer is it's both and neither. to write? Or have you always wanted to write, but decided that your job, your house, your family, your pets, your political affiliations, your volunteer work, your hobbies, your church, and that ache in your pinky you get on days ending in Y slow you down? Many professional writers have families. Many professional writers keep their day job. Many professional writers live their lives just like we do. Only they write, too like you should be doing. I Should Be Writing is the award-winning podcast that explores issues wannabe writers come up against every day. Everything from characterization to just the difficulty in getting on a writing schedule. And because I, your host, am a writer who's still learning, we do a rundown of my progress as well. This is not a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do type of show. I'm there in the trenches with you. Visit IShouldBeWriting.com to subscribe to this free podcast and download past episodes. Because you should be writing. She continues, We're given from the mouth of a major character that a different gender changes how your personality acts on the world. Then later, we're told that magically changing your gender means you must split your soul. Okay. Uh, In other words, we're told that the difference there's a difference between men and women that runs as deep as your soul. Okay, no. <laughs> I can see where you, you may have gotten that, but no. Um, as I said before, even our text specifically says that souls are not inherently sexual. And not all gender-changing magic in the world of Metamorph splits the soul. That's a specific feature of the androgyne curse, and it was set up in the story as a plot device for me to use to explore the kinds of themes that I wanted to. And it was necessary in order for everything else that I'm doing with Daniel and specifically with Jared to actually 
work itself out. So I'm not saying that turning female has to split your soul in half if you're a guy. No. Um, there is one particular form of sex-changing magic that does that. Out of curiosity, and I, I haven't <clears throat> mm-hmm. paid as close attention to this as she has. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm. this is a question for you. Have you set up and, and spent a little time dwelling on that that particular part of the curse makes it like an abomination or something like that? Hmm. I haven't dealt with that because the fact of Danny coming into existence as a separate person from Daniel... I don't consider that to be an abominable thing. No, I don't mean abominable like horrible. I mean abominable at the, the, in the original context. An abomination is a violation of the categories of the universe. Mm. There is certainly... The, the original curses were definitely black magic. They were, being, they were crafted with the aid of the dark gods and were done for a very malevolent purpose. And so in that respect... They are big, dark, scary magic that has been uh, somewhat tamed, Mm -hmm. uh, and people have largely become complacent about it because it has been tamed. Mm -hmm. But as Daniel and Danny have discovered, it is not without its (laughs) long-term effects. Yeah. Um, But but, um, as far as the larger argument, so no, the differences between men and women are not soul deep, but they are brain deep and they are mind deep. The difference between male or female goes down to fundamental differences in brain chemistry and in, therefore, how the soul interacts with the world around you. You've got some sort of spark of humanity that is then being processed through a biological brain that is under all kinds of hormonal influences all the time, which are very different for men and women. Which do change the structure of the brain. Right. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, that um, one of the uh, major causes of transgenderism is the wrong brain mm-hmm. in a body. It literally, you know, a person feels like they're in the wrong body. They're not hallucinating that. Right. They really are. Exactly. And so you can't treat masculinity and femininity as social constructs. They are the expression they take on. Yeah, the expression social. they they take on may be specific to the culture, um, but... and, and traits traits that are ascribed to masculinity in one culture are mm-hmm. ascribed to femininity in another culture. Mm-hmm. There, there's a wide spectrum of categories of things mm-hmm. like that. But there are very definitely um, yeah. GYE interaction mm-hmm. terms where the genetics of the person are very strongly influenced in their expression by the sex of the person and by thus the the brain chemistry of the person. And that's something that's not going to come out in a person who changes sexes for a lark um, using a short-term magical spell. But with anybody who undergoes a long-term change like Daniel has, or like Danny has, uh, it's going to show itself. It may be worth going back and making a bigger deal of the the abnormality of what the curse does earlier on, um, so that you don't get confusion among the readers. You mean when I go and re- edit the the when, novel? When you edit the novel, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, usually when I get this kind of reaction from one of my female readers, mm-hmm. usually it means that I've failed to communicate well enough what I have in mind, mm-hmm. and have thus unintentionally tripped over. Um, tripwires that are laid down. 
part of the problem that we have here is that um, all of the information that Danny has gotten about being a woman is specifically advice about being an androgyne and is coming to her from a woman who is an androgyne, who sees this as the norm. You know, Mm -hmm. she was raised with this from, you know, the time that she was, you know, from when she was less than a year Mm -hmm. old. This is all that Ava has ever known. Right. And so while what she's experiencing may be dramatically different from the norm for a human female, Ava doesn't have another frame of reference. Right. And so from her perspective, this is the way, what it means to be a woman. This mm-hmm. is normal for her because it's all, you know, asking her to be aware of the differences between her and a purely female human being who is genetically female from right. birth is like asking a fish to be aware of the fact that it's wet. Right. Yeah, and this is something I've thought a lot about because I play with shit in my books and stories that that I would never go anywhere near in real life. Mm-hmm. I've kind of tentatively come to the conclusion that when you're talking about a novel, you know, short stories they stand on their own, and you mm-hmm. can't. When you're talking about a novel where you're going into territory that's alien and really politically sensitive, mm-hmm. and you want people to come along for the ride rather than jettisoning because you're offending them. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad idea to tip your hand somehow else to give a little bit of extra cluing in that this is a perspective in this universe, not necessarily the author's perspective. Mm. I had to I actually had to do quite a lot of that in the rewrite with Cassie because I really like Cassie. Mm-hmm. But um, I got, uh, from my writing buddy, I got quite a lot of shit about how she was portrayed first draft through because I did not do enough to build the context outside of her point of view. So Mm -hmm. what she was seeing was being taken as ultimate reality, which was then being emotionally back projected onto me and Mm. my politics and my views on things, which I don't share many of her politics or views on things. Well, that's one thing I'm running into with the whole Psy Collective. People are assuming that because this is the way their society is set up, that that's like my ideal society or Mm -hmm. that that's the way things ought to be. (coughs) Right. So anyway... Mm-hmm. For what it for what it's worth, that's how I've learned to deal with that. Yeah, you know, and Heinlein had to deal with it too. People would come to Starship Troopers as his first novel, and they go, "Oh, he's a fascist." <laughs> Continuing on. Now I'm perfectly aware of your wiggle room in the concepts as they are presented. You can definitely argue different intentions, character assumptions, and facts that aren't true, and different persons in the background, which is what we've just been doing. Mm-hmm. But they don't make it into a story, and the story should be able to stand for itself without needing the context. Well, see, I'm. this is one of those areas where, I mean, can you really assume that a opinion is shared by the author just because it's articulated? I mean, I don't mm. think that that's fair to do to the author, particularly if you're jumping around to different people's heads and you're present. I mean, people don't assume that... At least I hope they don't assume that that Malcolm Ardvalis's worldview no. <laughs> is mine, just because I happen to be able to articulate it well. A lot of readers tend to assume, and not all readers, and I'm sure certainly, I'm sure Kim doesn't fall into this category because I know her to be really, really sharp. But a lot of readers tend to assume that the sympathetic character shares the novelist's worldview unless they know the novelist's other work well enough. Mm. You know. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a catch twenty two yeah. because you well, have it's, to it's present very delicate balancing act, and you're never going to please everybody. But well, yeah, but also t- in order to present the Psy Collective's world, I had to sink myself into. Daniel's point of view and right. Brian's point of view and Miriam's point of view, which are three mm-hmm. very different points of view. True. And present them sympathetically. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they are the, the heroes because they're the people through whose eyes we're seeing the story. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I agree with everything that they hold to be true and good. Right. But I had to work with them because they are the most sympathetic characters in the story. <laughs> she continues... And this is probably where a lot of this came, uh, what occasioned a lot of this. She says, I realized how bad the plot sounds when you strip the emotions and the sensuality and empathy of your writing from the equation, taking it down to one line descriptions and events rather than multi dimensional characters, as I tried to explain it to a friend. Ah. Yeah, that's yeah, that would always, make all of us look bad. Yeah, that's, that's always difficult. She continues. First, while the society's emphasis on breeding is shown mostly for the negative effects on Daniel and Jared, this very same emphasis gives women inordinate value as breeders, played in a different direction, true. But while we don't have historical context of men being valued only for their reproductive capability in our own society, there was a time not so long ago when women were valued only for this, and in some places this still holds. Secondly, if you take away the background of the loving, poly, open, and supportive family, what you're left with is a situation where a man can have a bunch of different women, but the women can only have that one man. This, too, has negative implications in our history and our society. Remember, the flower must not ever go from B to B to B? Yeah, I am aware of the, shall we say, unfortunate historical connotations for some of uh, what's going on with the uh, the breeding cells. And that is one of the areas where I have tried to be very careful to be emphasizing the, the characterization and fleshing out what's going on with the individuals. Because if you'd strip it down to its naked components, yes, it does look bad. Because we are going to, as... You know, Americans with our cultural background, we're going to project onto that framework the very worst possible implementations of it that have been true throughout history. And that, that has more to do with the cultural baggage that we carry around with the ideas of polygamous families than it does with the inherent structure of what the Psy uh, Collective is doing. And Dan just pointed out something very interesting, which is that a lot of those ideas that we have about polygamy have to do with the propaganda that was put out by the United States government against the Mormons during the 19th century in order to make make them into unsympathetic figures. You want to add anything to that? Which is not to say that a number of polygamous societies, in fact, maybe the majority of polygynous societies throughout history have been very oppressive to women. This is true. But our cultural image of polygyny is a caricature based on political propaganda and on um, the modern sort of creepy cultish well, groups, and on reading, and also on reading Bible stories through the lens of that anti-Mormon propaganda. Mm-hmm. For a much more interesting and detailed history of the way um, family structure has evolved and whose interests each format has served and how. I recommend the work of Stephanie Kuntz, who wrote The Way We Never Were and several other books 
books on social histories of family structure. Mm, good stuff. But yeah, I mean, the Psy the Collective is, in a lot of ways, a very conservative institution, which makes sense, given that it is a group mind that values the good of the many above the good of the, the one. This is a society that is trying to maintain a cohesive culture in the face of basically starting from nothing. I mean, the, the worldwide Psy population is microscopic compared to the overall human population. And yes, they do exalt the value of women for their reproductive powers, but that's something that any society that is seeking to aggressively expand its population must do. It's also worth pointing out that um, minority cultures particularly insular and oppressed minority cultures, almost always develop survival traits that are maximizing in the short term and very detrimental to the culture in the long term, mm -hmm. both the culture and its members, yeah. where the culture often will survive at the expense of its members. Right. Yeah. The size are they're, – they're basically like colonists on an alien world where they are the only representatives – of their species, as it were, or at least their subspecies. And they have to breed quickly or they're going to risk dying out. Uh, so their society is constructed in a way that places value on reproduction. And it's something that the entire society recognizes. It's not about sexism. It's about recognizing that, that a woman has a power that a man can never have, the ability to bear a child. And that it views that that power is something to be celebrated and is a crucial element in their ongoing survival. It's interesting, though, that the um, the thing that patriarchal societies and uh, pat patrocentric societies like the Psy Collective and the... Um, Who says that the, the Psy Collective is patrocentric? It's culturally patrocentric. Define what you mean. The men don't quite have authority, but because um, each breeding cell is clustered around a, a man, the man does have the power in a social sense, even if it's not formal. Mm. It, but um, the common theme between patrocentric societies and the idealized ancient uh, goddess-worshipping paganism that gets extolled in some sectors of the women's studies movement, the thing they have in common is the sexism the focusing on the value of a woman coming from her biology rather than from her accomplishments as an individual, mm -hmm. which is uh, the one thing that um, that modern liberal people tend to find rather abhorrent about sexism in mm -hmm. the first place. But I'm not sure that it's quite fair to say that, that recognizing and appreciating and putting value on a woman's reproductive power is inherently sexist. No, I wasn't, I wasn't putting yeah. it... Well, no, yeah, it, there's, is, there's, it is inherently sexist, but... It's not, not inherently misogynistic. It's not then. inherently misogynistic. I wasn't putting a moral thumb on the misogyny scale. I was just noting the irony that ah. the sexism is the thing that, that, that both movements have in common. Or so both when you say sexism, you're referring to, in general, be a, a awareness of difference. Not just an awareness, but a, a, a comparative valuation mm -hmm. based upon the the biological difference. Oh, what you're talking about is, for good or bad, valuing a person based on their gender and their gender traits. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, rather than on their accomplishments. 
mm-hmm. whether you're lauding a woman for being able to have a, a child or whether you are dismissing feminine characteristics. They're both inherently sexist because you place the value of the person on their gender rather than on what who they are and what they do and what they think. But at the same, by the same token, I'm not disagreeing with you, but on, by the same token, um, the capacity to have a child is a large, it is a portion of what a person can do and what a person is well, capable no, of doing in a society that values reproduction right. and values but that's, n- that's, children. That's, that's exactly what, what I'm pointing out, though, is mm-hmm. the, um, the difference between the um, Psy Collective in Metamorph City and the archaic um, goddess-worshipping religions mm-hmm. and contemporary and I've got to qualify it all the way down because I realize there's a great gradient even in our country mm-hmm. on attitudes towards um, towards gender and sexual um, sexual roles, etc. But the let's say between that and the liberal ideal mm-hmm. is that the liberal ideal holds a value of a person inherent in who they are, what they think, what they do, rather than in the potentialities of their biology. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a, um, a society that is less comfortable, less cosmopolitan, less economically developed, or more uh, repressed will tend to revert to uh, valuing people based on the potentials of their biology or their position as opposed to valuing them on the basis of their individual accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, um, this is a really interesting little conversation, too, because you could make the argument that if you value people only on the basis of, of their accomplishments, on what they have already done, then you're going, that's going to tend to minimize the value that is placed on the young and on people who have not yet accomplished very much, but have the potential to do so. Um, there is, and whatever you have the potential to do is in large uh, respect informed by your genetic capabilities, by whatever yeah. bag of traits you were given. And so I don't think that either one of those things can be discarded, that you have to be able to place value on on people um, on, on what a person is capable of doing, even if they haven't done it yet, as well as uh, recognizing and placing value on the contributions that people have already made. I, 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 th- I think you're right, but I'm uncomfortable with how you're getting there. <laughs> um, the notion of taking a risk on someone because of their potential mm-hmm. is, um, comes up in risk calculation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do it all the time, whether we're taking a risk on that someone is going to keep our confidences or we're taking a risk on, say, students at a charter school, mm-hmm. knowing that some of them are going to disappoint, but making the bet that enough of them won't that putting your life into what is a frustrating job mm-hmm. will be worth it both in the large scale and in the sense of personal fulfillment. Mm-hmm. But that's betting on potential. Mm-hmm. Which is a bit of a different thing from, you know, not that there's no overlap, but it is a bit of a different thing from awarding someone earned respect, rights, uh, dignity, 
or, or uh, respect or rights, recognizing dignity um, because of someone's individual accomplishments. Um, the kind of person they are, their ethics, their um, the way they live up to their potential or don't. Mm-hmm. You know, some someone who is of average intelligence and gifting who achieves right up to the limit of their potential and lives a full life has my respect every day over a Mensa member who, because things came too easy, never learned to work hard for things until it was late enough in the game that they prefer just to quit when the going gets tough. Mm -hmm. At least from my perspective, and I think from the perspective of the liberal tradition, there is greater value in what you do with what you've got mm-hmm. than there is in who you are by virtue of birth. Um, mm-hmm. David Brin made a wonderful argument about the immorality inherent in Star Wars hmm. because it values a heroic archetype that is completely opposed to what we consider moral. It, it values heroes who are born as the chosen one rather than heroes who make their way in the world by virtue of the strength of their character. Mm-hmm. And I think he had a good point. In fact, I think he, he, he did a compare contrast between Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, because Lord of the Rings is often hit on for being anti-modernist, right? Because it, it, it loves an, uh, monarchy and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, serfdom. But the one thing Lord of the Rings does that is thoroughly modernistic, that Star Wars goes back to a previous and less enlightened age for, is Lord of the Rings has a hero who is an individual who takes on his obligations by choice and fulfills them by the strength of his character, not because he's chosen by destiny. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Star Wars, the exact opposite is true. Yeah, that's a good point. And we're cooking dinner in the background, so the sound's not going to be as pristine as normal, but we want to keep the conversation going while it's hot. Yeah, so that I don't lose track of my, my brain because my thoughts tend to flitter away when I'm not looking. Um, Turn the third mic off. Okay. <clears throat> if I had one criticism to make of the Psy Collective's society that I think is, is the area where they are going the most wrong, mm-hmm. is that while they do have a structure that values both an individual's personal accomplishments and their biological potential, as it were, I think that they place too much emphasis on reproductive capacity and the ability to produce you know strong psychic offspring as a measure of a person's potential they've devalued and marginalized daniel on the basis of the fact that he isn't very good breeding material in terms of his psychic ability mm-hmm. and in that respect they have thrown away somebody who is well, a very courageous heart and a very noble heart. Mm -hmm. And so, while he doesn't always make the smart choices, he is definitely acting with courage and conviction throughout and is acting for not only for his own best interest, but trying to take care of his friends as well. So, this is is definitely an area where I have a beef with the Psy Collective and where their obsession with their own survival is acting against them and is acting to the the detriment of the society because it's causing people to be pushed to the margins who deserve to be valued and included. 
And the exploration of that concept is a large part of the reason for why making the cut exists as a story. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that a holistic view that appreciates both an individual's biological potential and their artistic or creative or psychological potential would be very advantageous to the Psy Collective in its particular situation with its particular goals. They can't afford to take the wholly liberal view of Mm -hmm. completely throwing out a person's biological potential as being a point of consideration for merit. Mm -hmm. But they need... they ought to have a more balanced view of things than they currently have. And mm-hmm. their their imbalance is causing them problems. Right. So, uh, moving on. Mm-hmm. Why aren't there more... Uh, this is back to Kim's email, by the way, which if you all had forgotten, we're actually still <laughs> responding to. This is... Kim, if you ever get a bug up your ass and want to send a scathing email to me of this caliber, I would be ever so grateful. Yeah, it's this has been been great... Um, conversation stuff. Why aren't there metamores in Metamore? <laughs> Rebecca's character took a bit of a hit in my estimation because we didn't see sufficient pressure on her to cut Daniel off. Was it the other members of the cell that decided he was off limits? We never saw this reasoning. Yeah, um, this is part of the the price that I've paid for jumping ahead several years in the narrative between Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. The breeding cell was a compromise in the psychoactive society that was designed to uh, maximize reproduction while allaying the conservative fears of social chaos and the degradation of the family. It is in their best interest reproductively to have a lot of breeding going on, and the one-man, one-woman relationship structure is working contrary to maximal reproductive output in a society, in, well, in any biological system. But it would particularly run contrary to what the Psy Collective is trying to accomplish. But at the same time, the fears of infidelity and the resulting social chaos that results from it um, was a source of concern for a lot of members of the collective, which is part of the reason why they have this polyfidelity social structure in place with the breeding cells. Uh, Rebecca is submitting to that prevailing social order because she believes in the goals of the collective society, even though they've cost her personally. So she's giving up something that she cares about because she believes in the mission and because she believes in the society that they're trying to sustain, even if she doesn't always agree with it. But on the same token, her and Daniel's story is showing the imperfections in that system. And you're seeing in the story that when by the time that she goes and rescues Daniel, she's reached her breaking point. And she's gotten to the, the point where she has realized that she is no longer willing to bow to that social pressure in order to maintain the status quo, because it has gotten to the point where she is very personally aware that it has hurt someone that she loves. And she has that conversation with Sasha, where Sasha asks her, you know, you're not going to be content to just let him go back to the way things were. And she's like, no. So they have acknowledged this. The summer cell realizes that, emotionally speaking, that, that what 
they were doing to Daniel was toxic, and that even though they may have tried to make Daniel feel welcome and you know a part an extended part of the family that cutting off the relationship between him and Rebecca it was having serious negative consequences and so you see the summer cell willing to stretch itself that they're willing to offer a compromise deal but they're still very cautious about it and that's why they set up these preconditions of, you know, come and live with us for a period of time until we believe that you are as committed to the family as we are and as you are to Rebecca. And then, you know, we'll agree to allow you you guys to sleep together again. <clears throat> oh, actually, this next, uh, this next uh, paragraph is something that I've been wanting to ask you, too. So, okay, cool. So along with your major theme of individual freedoms versus the value and survival of society, you bring gender issues into the symbolic level of the narrative. But where you at least question whether it is morally correct to pursue your individual freedom over what the society perceives as best for itself, although I'd like clearer narrative indications of your standing on this question as well. And I'm not going to give them to you because <laughs> I think that that is an a a issue that uh, doesn't have a simple answer. And I'm not interested in coming down heavy-handed on one side or the other. I believe very strongly in the value of the individual and the importance of individuality. But I also recognize that society's needs have their place and that there needs to be balance between the two. It's, it's not a simple either-or kind of an issue. One of these days, you and I have got to get into that because we disagree on a couple points of nuance that we could go for years on. Oh, I'm sure. Which is even more fun because we agree in broad strokes. We do. <laughs> you never once directly challenge any of the assumptions about gender that are the driving factors of much of your plot. You merely tacitly support the idea that there is a deep and uncrossable divide between the sexes. This is the part I've been wanting to ask you about, too. Because um, I th actually think she's right about that. You know, you and I agree on uh, on the uh, the complex nature of gender and the unquestionable biological rootedness of it. Right. Which is not to say it shouldn't be questioned. It's just that it has been questioned at and length and it's been pretty, fairly effectively answered. Exactly. There are very fundamental differences between yes. men and women, and men and women are not interchangeable. Right. But the point, the part that I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. is um, the uncrossable divide between the sexes. From what I understand from my reading of neurobiology mm -hmm. and you know from direct experience, but I trust neurobiology more than I trust direct experience. <laughs> You're smart. From my reading of neurobiology, gender exists where, where well, even, even biological sex exists on a gradient, but gender even more so uh -huh. exists on a gradient from female to male mm -hmm. with thousands of shades of gray in between mm -hmm. in the way the brain is put together. And of course, anyone who's had any uh, passing interest in looking up gender issues on Wikipedia, have been you can see the analogous physical gradient of manifestations of different sexes mm -hmm. from yeah. female on one end to male on the other with ambiguous Intersex forms of genitalia all the way in between. Yeah. And I should also point out that the gradations in physical, biological sex and the gradations in psychological gender are not necessarily correlated. No, they correlate sometimes, other times they don't at all. Right. Because they're driven by different uh, developmental factors. Exactly. But, um, 
it is something I've noticed in Metamore in a world where sex and gender are such an issue. Mm-hmm. The remarkable lack of intermediates. You've got the the enchanted uh, sex changers, the androgynes, mm-hmm. and you've got males and females of different orientations. Mm-hmm. But there aren't dysphorics and there aren't intersex people. Well, not that we've seen not so that we've far. seen yet, but um, it's because of the way the rest of the story is structured. That absence is loud by its, mm-hmm. you know, the absence is loud because the it's like there's a hole in this otherwise really amazing symphony. Well, thank you, but um, I'm already feeling like the story suffers a bit from kitchen sink syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> there was a limit to how much I could address in one novel and not go completely off the true, rails. True, true, true. Um, the plot has to come in there somewhere. <laughs> but oh, there's a plot? There's a plot. Oh, my God. I know. It's shocking. I'm sure that half the people lost me somewhere around the time I went into Lena's backstory for half of a chapter. But there is a plot. <laughs> But well, there's something about vampires and shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, there aren't dysphorics because dysphoria is actually curable. You know, if you are mm. if you are gender dysphoric, if you are in the wrong body, they can fix that. And far better than we can. <laughs> right. So yeah, dysphoria oh, I, I didn't mean dysphoria mm-hmm. bad enough to nece- to necessitate a change mm-hmm. but um you know mild dysphoria mm-hmm. you know like um you know someone who's really in- a man who's really in touch with his feminine side you know to some extent i almost wonder if daniel is mm. you know part yeah. of that partly because he's the closest parallel to me that's in the story mm-hmm. and i consider myself to be more in touch with my feminine side than the average male mm-hmm. The question of intersex individuals and intermediate sexual behavior, I think that the the nature of the androgyne curse tends to almost encourage extremism. Right. Now, it is possible for a person who has the androgyne curse to exist in an intermediate androgynous state, but... I just figured out the the last piece of character angle for my uh, story. There you go. There you go. I'm going to write this down while you talk. And there are some individuals who choose to do that, who some androgynes, particularly lower generation androgynes, where the differences between the male and female halves of the personality are not widely divergent. People who choose to live in that sort of intermediate state that they can maintain pretty much indefinitely. Mm -hmm. But we haven't seen those people yet because they make up a fairly small percentage of the androgyne population because the general pressure on the androgynes is to go to one extreme or the other. Hyper-feminine, right. Exactly. That's, that's one of the pressures that's on them because of the nature of the curse and its, its existence as an attempt to turn people in, into hypersexual beings. Right. Not to say that a person who was androgynous could not have a high sex drive. Certainly they could. But there's a, a social pressure and a magical pressure kind of working to magnify each other's effects here. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I certainly do believe that gender in particular, as distinct from biological sex, is a gradient and that it is a very broad and diverse gradient. And it's something that I do find interesting enough to be explored in fiction. 
It's just that with this first novel, it's not something that has really come to the fore yet mm. because of the the nature of the story that I was telling. The characters that I I was happened to be working with, they tend to be falling fairly heavily on the extremes. Although I would make an argument that Fiona is a much more intermediate mm. um, personality in terms of her psychological gender. Okay. But yeah, I mean I'm not I'm certainly not saying that there's no gradation or the, the, there's no room for a gradient of masculinity and femininity. It's just that that hasn't come out with this particular story and that there are very definitely major substantial biological differences between men and women that play themselves out in the how the soul expresses itself. And I think that any gotcha. I, any idea of feminism that ignores that biological component is both unrealistic and ultimately self-destructive. Mm-hmm. She continues, Well, it's getting late, and this is getting long. You should have seen the four pages that didn't make the cut for this. Oh, heavens. <laughs> We'd be here until three in the morning. <laughs> Just don't want to leave without one last note. I wouldn't bother to bring up these issues if the story were not this good. You've done an incredible job of set piece and writing. Can you blame me for being greedy and wanting just that little bit more? (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Kim. I definitely really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And I've tried to answer your thoughtful email with a level of response that it merits. And that's one of the reasons why I'm devoting so much time in this feedback show to this email. Um, we, yeah, we actually did about an hour on that email. Yeah, because I think it really, it deserves that that attention and that level of exploration. But I think that we, there are going to be some points where we're going to continue to disagree. And hopefully we can at least understand where each other are coming from and agree to respect each other's opinions, even if we don't exactly see eye to eye on them. Cool. <sighs> That was good. Yeah. I'm gonna, now let's uh, let's pause and throw in a promo here, and, All right. or maybe we'll break this into we'll break the episode well, yeah, into we're two pieces over here. Two hours here. Yeah, this this is probably going to be a place where we break the episode in, into another piece here. So we will come back in the next portion of the feedback show with your voicemails. Ooh, and there's a lot more emails. And more emails yet to come. Stay tuned. I thought I had a lot for the last one. Holy shit. Oh yeah, this is good stuff. Cool.